machine learning is widely understood by the software community, but it is still hard to build a company around machine learning because there is not easy access to large, unique data sets. Scale is a platform for training and validating data that is used for machine learning. Most machine learning models are built with supervised learning. Labeled examples are analyzed to understand the mathematical correlations between those labels. The more labeled training examples there are, the more accurate the correlations will be. Today, we have high-quality frameworks for writing the models. We have cheap cloud computing for training and deploying the models. The biggest factor that is preventing a wide variety of potential machine learning applications from existing is lack of access to large labeled datasets. Scale gives developers an API for labeling images and sound and natural language and video. Scale uses a platform of scalers who are labeling the data. These are people that are paid through Scale, and they will do these tasks at an API request. Scale is used by self-driving car companies to label data from the self-driving car cameras. It's used by Airbnb, it's used by OpenAI, it's used by retailers and robotics companies. The Scale product is used broadly and at high volume. Scale was started only three years ago, and has raised $100 million at a valuation above $1 billion, making it one of the fastest-growing startup software companies in history. Alexander Wang joins the show to discuss how scale works, the future of machine learning, and the future of work. He also describes the complexities of building scale and how he manages his own psychological state. Alexander Wang, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. The core of what you do is data labeling. And data labeling is important for machine learning because in order to train machine learning models, we need labeled data sets. Explain what happens when a piece of data is sent to the Scale API for labeling. Good question. So we receive this data and then first we run it through a bunch of machine learning algorithms on our own. So we go through and pre-process the data. Maybe there's some issue in the data that we have to notify the customer about. But most of the time we pre-process it and we try to do as much of the labeling as possible automatically while managing bias. And then it gets sent through to our labeler platform for quality verifications and fixes of any errors that might have been made on the data already. And then after that process, we send it back to the customer via a webhook or some other uh, API integration. And then they take that data, they add it to their data lake or whatnot, and then eventually they retrain their model on it. Explain how you make sure that the correct labels are being applied. Yes. So this is, for anyone who's worked on data labeling, in a nutshell, this is maybe the the hardest problem, <laughs> is managing quality of these labeling procedures. So the way that we approach it is is twofold. I think we sort of view this as both a both a product and engineering problem of how do you ensure quality, as well as an operations problem of how do you build scalable processes that actually work, right? So from a product and engineering standpoint, we build a lot of systems internally at scale that, that do a variety of things that help us measure the quality of data, as well as measure the quality of particular kinds of errors. So a lot of times what happens in these labeling processes is there's, there's certain kinds of errors that the labelers might be making that they're sort of, they might not know that those are actually errors, for example, right? And so a lot of it is helping build automated systems that will notice when they're making those mistakes, retrain or sort of give them content or training courses that tell them, oh, you're making this kind of error automatically, and then and then sort of help them get better and better and better over time. So constant monitoring, quality monitoring automatically and, and training and retraining is a really big part of it. And then we make sure that all of our, our sort of quality standards at the end, we have a large amount of QA on top of all this data that samples some small portion of the data to ensure that it's very high quality. We ensure that all of that QA is, is trained to the highest standards and is, is sort of looking for absolutely any kind of error that might, that might be in the data. We talked about this a little bit in the first episode that we did, but I want to recover it because I think it's, it's a problem that has a lot of engineering depth to it. The classic thing that people always 
talk about with Mechanical Turk is, at least I hear this, you need to send a training example to three different Turks and you take the two out of three answer. And because you assume that there's going to be somebody who is going to be just answering whatever, like, you know, labeling everything a cat, even though obviously not most pictures are cats. Do you have to have that kind of redundancy where you have three people that you send each piece of data to? So this is a really good question. That's been the, I guess, the standard method for a very long time. I actually personally think that 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 method only takes you so far. So doing this, we call it consensus, but there's a sort of like this duplication of labeling and then sort of taking the majority vote. That only works in a small number of kinds of labeling tasks, actually. Um, It won't work for, uh, in particular, as machine learning gets more and more advanced, we're doing much more advanced things with machine learning, like object recognition or object segmentation or um, voice transcription, et cetera. And all of these tasks are not well suited to that approach because like, if you have three people transcribe an audio snippet, it's very unlikely that like two out of three of them are going to be exactly the same. Like there's always going to be small nuances in between them. So A, I think that approach is limited, but then B, the question is, do you have multiple people look at each piece of data to ensure it's really correct? And I think we definitely do. We definitely have multiple people look over every single piece of data to basically ensure maximum correctness. And when, what, what we do is actually as a system is since we are constantly tracking which kinds of errors various people on the platform are making, there's sort of, we try to, have multiple people look at each individual piece of data who have very uncorrelated errors, who have very different errors that they make. So you sort of have all of your bases covered if it goes through multiple of these people in series. And that's actually really core. That's been really huge for us is is ensuring that we sort of each piece of data is, is very tightly quality controlled. Just to understand a little bit better why the consensus process doesn't even work for more complex machine learning tasks. Is it because there's just increasing subjectivity as the tasks get more complex? Like instead of just labeling if a thing is a cat or a dog or transcribing a piece of audio, you're actually doing things like describing a scene. And if you're describing a scene, you're likely to get three divergent answers, all of which may be correct. Yeah, so so there's there's two things, I think. One of them is definitely subjectivity. That's definitely one direction that causes there to be divergence. And so, for example, we did we did this recent project with OpenAI that they just published all the results about. Um, but there, we were sort of helping to fine tune their language model GPT two, which would which would produce a lot of different kinds of text, and you had to rate it on different subjective axes. And and in those cases, because again, because of the subjectivity, like you're saying, the the sort of best two out of three approach wouldn't have worked very well because you actually it was the divergence of the responses meant that you had to quality control some other way. So that, that's definitely one. But then the other thing is that there's actually just a lot of kinds of, of tasks where even if two people have the same intent in what what they're exactly they're doing, they won't respond with the exact same thing. And it's really hard to know how to combine very different responses, right? So for example, in a, the case of transcribing audio is very simple, right? But let's say you hear somebody say like, because the dog was green, we painted it purple or some, some, something like that. Even the punctuation of like, is somebody going to add a comma after the first clause is relevant. And then in particular, like in audio, you'll always have particular words that are hard to make out. I'm sure as a as a podcaster, you know this pretty well. But you'll always have uh, have words that are really hard to make out, and then and then uh, different people might respond to different things. And so it's like as the number of choices increases, and the number of sort of like maybe not subjective, but more sort of free form the responses, the less that kind of approach works. Right. Like I've seen Kubernetes be transcribed into some some different things in my uh, podcast transcriptions. Yeah, and I don't blame them. So. I mean, in this this process of the data getting labeled, you actually have the opportunity to train your own machine learning models to do the labeling as accurately, potentially, as these scalers are labeling the data. What are the tasks where, just by virtue of the amount of data going through your system, 
you will be able to eventually, potentially, factor out the scalar and just defer completely to your own internal models for doing data labeling? Yeah, so it's an interesting question and, and one where I actually my lean on this on this subject is is much is more conservative in the sense that I think it's it will always be very important to have a human in the loop for like sort of philosophically for machine learning and and also more practically to manage quality of of a lot of these models, right? So it's sort of like invariably models will make mistakes in somewhat weird ways that are that are sort of might seem strange to humans and will impact like in part of these models are, are out in the wild somewhere say they're on a self-driving car or they're operating some fraud process or some loan process etc like all of these areas where people are, are deploying machine learning models you actually really care about the models consistently getting better and behaving in ways that are that are sort of predictable to humans etc and because of that i think it's really dangerous to ever let these models sort of go wild in some sense. Like you, you always want there to be humans involved in the process so that they can constantly sort of keep the models in check and keep them within some operating zone that, that is sort of reasonable, is, is well-managed, et cetera. So, so I sort of have, it's kind of, again, it's kind of this old school approach, but because a lot of these machine learning models today, they primarily learn from the humans that help uh, label the data to train them. It's really important that, that that process sort of stays true to what humans actually expect. You have 16 APIs at this point, at least judging by your homepage. You probably have some more that you're testing. Your homepage is starting to look something like AWS. Just a few examples. You have video annotation, polygon labeling, audio and speech, sentiment analysis. How do you maintain high quality across all these APIs when there's so much surface area? Yeah, it's it's actually a really good question. And it's one that, especially as we build our products and as we build all of our systems, we think a lot about. So if you look at the cloud companies like AWS, GCP, et cetera, I mean, different developers have different beliefs, but they've generally done a pretty good job at maintaining quality and reliability of the services on those platforms, with some some exceptions that I think we the developers like to joke about a lot. But but as in general, I think they've done a very good job. And if you if you sort of look at organizationally how that made that happen, AWS, what they, one thing they really focused on was making it so that there were a lot of very independent teams that could sort of work as startups in some sense over their domain of products. And then there were sort of these platform and infrastructure teams that would build tools that would help all of these teams move faster or build infrastructure that would help all of these teams move faster. And organizationally, that that's the approach that we take. And I think it's I think it's the right one when you're sort of when you your business looks like ours where you'll need to be able to provide developers and machine learning engineers and data scientists, et cetera, with a wide variety of different options because in reality, they have all sorts of different kinds of data. They have all sorts of different kinds of machine learning they want to do on top of this data. So it's really important that customers have access to all of these products. And then us knowing that, we sort of view it as, okay, how do we how do we set up our engineering and product and design organization to actually scale uh, the number of products effectively. So we, we do take this sort of like, we have we have lots of small teams um, that are dedicated to each product and sort of have full sovereignty over the product to help make them great. I was thinking about how what you are doing with these APIs compares to one of these cloud providers. And one way I was thinking about they, that they might differ is the sensitivity of something like S3 or RDS or like load balancing infrastructure, it's like super sensitive infrastructure, super high uptime. Data labeling is in many cases an offline process. It's not on the critical path for a business. And I'm wondering if that kind of lower, not that it would lower the quality of service that you would need to guarantee, but sort of like in the event that you know, it's going to take 30 minutes to get a piece of data labeled rather than 20 seconds or five seconds. Is that fatal for you? Like how, 
is the scale API infrastructure on the critical path of your customers, or is it okay if you have variable latencies? It's a really good question. So I, I think in general, with as sort of the, the world infrastructure, infrastructure loosely used changes, different infrastructure products will require different, will have different dimensions upon which they have to be extremely good, right? So a simple example of this is like, you're right, a lot of these AWS infrastructure, it's very important that they have very high uptime, they have low latency, but then but those are sort of like their key metrics. And then if you think about something like Stripe, it's still very important that it has very high uptime. The latency matters a lot less than some of these AWS services, but then it also matters that they like have low fraud rates and, and that they they have a great developer experience, so it's easy to integrate. It's just like each infrastructure product is slightly different characteristics that are required. And you're right, which is the fact that for data labeling, latency, it turns out matters a lot less because because there's there's an expectation that, and this is what happens in, in practice, right? That that because there's this there's this active labeling process where humans will go through the data, that could take that could take longer. That being said, there's other performance dimensions upon which we have to be extremely good. So so one of those being data quality. I think it's kind of an interesting question is like in terms of whether or not scales on the critical path. There's one way to look at it, which is, okay, if we label data a little bit slower and then the new model trains up a little bit slower, that might not be the end of the world for the customer. But if if we provide poor quality data and then the model retrains on that data and then and then starts behaving poorly when it's launched into production, then that's sort of that's very bad, right? So instead of in sort of this, at least the current way a lot of these machine learning pipelines work, the, the critical thing is actually sort of data quality and bias, much more so than the performance, the, the sort of like latency or uptime of our service. But that, but that means we take it, we take it sort of much more seriously. We take this quality aspect much more seriously than um, I think a lot of these other, a lot of these other services might. So how do you gracefully degrade? It's a really good question. So oftentimes, if you think about services, you want, whenever you have issues to, oh, first of all, overly communicate with your customers. So you want, if you notice that maybe something's going wrong, and so you won't be able to deliver as high quality or you won't be able to deliver as much data as originally you expected, that they sort of both at an infrastructure level as well as like a human level, surprisingly, you notify the customer that 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 kind of thing is happening. And then oftentimes what we do, or one thing that we've built in is sort of, there's sort of some efficient frontier, right, of, of quality and latency, right? Like if we have more time to do stuff, we'll be able to do it at higher quality. If we have less time, we'll be able to do it at lower quality. And we sort of give our customers some amount of trade-off there, which is, okay, you have the option of, you can get all your data sooner, it might be lower quality, or you can you can wait, you'll get higher quality data. And most of our customers, I mean, one thing we notice is that quality is king in general when it comes to data, but then sometimes you have you have other needs, like say you have a deadline, you need to, you need to improve the model. So it really, it really varies, but, but that's, that's really one thing is sort of, in general infrastructure, as you degrade, in particular where these decision, like right now, because of this latency stuff, it's okay if if sort of our customers or developer makes a decision that, that you sort of give optionality. One of the reasons it's important to have this graceful degradation in mind is this is not like scaling the Uber workforce because in the Uber workforce there's a lot of people who can drive cars. I mean, you can you can kind of play this supply and demand game where you, you know, ramp up brand advertising if you need more drivers and eventually that's going to get you more drivers or you offer them better deals and you start to take a, you know, you start to take a hit to your margins, but you can scale up the workforce very quickly. With the scale API, it's a little bit different because training somebody to label polygons, for example, that might be a little bit more tricky or at least non-standardized than driving. And if you move up the stack, it gets more and more specialized. So for example, you could imagine scale for, I don't know, labeling tumors, right? I mean, we already have this conversation in the public nexus that the radiologist is going to be out of work. And you and I both know that 
that is kind of glossing over the subtlety of what will actually happen to radiologists. Maybe radiology gets turned into more of an API request with a human in the loop. What's interesting about thinking about that is like, it makes me wonder if there are white collar data labeling jobs in the future. It's an interesting question. I mean, in some sense, there are definitely, I mean, for example, if you're an engineer, there's definitely processes that you do that one day, if you're a believer in machine learning, could be significantly automated. Like code reviews, for example, is a clear task that it requires a lot of semantics. So right now we, we're probably not, we're not suited to solve it, but eventually, right? Like we're, we're going to have the technology that can help automate that. We will have technology that will sort of, you'll have models that understand what are the parts of this code that you would likely flag. And you could sort of like have some tool that, that is, uh, is more automated. Or for example, even writing lots of boilerplate code. And, and th- like software engineering is one of, I mean, I think most people think of it as like a very uh, sort of like high judgment job that might be slow to be automated. But even like a lot of these more repetitive things that, that uh, you do as a part of it, you, you definitely can imagine a good amount of automation in the future using machine learning. I definitely think it's sort of machine learning and, and quote unquote AI is very profound in the sense that it has the ability to just sort of speed everything up, speed up all of these like sort of decision-making processes that humans do in the long term uh, once as technology improves, et cetera. Like again, code reviews, probably not going to be automated anytime soon, but maybe one day. But it's it's much more nuanced, kind of like you're saying, it's much more nuanced than than like, oh, it's just going to be fully automated at one point. It's not like a one zero problem, right? It's not a like you're going to go from doing it all the time to just fully automate. It's going to go pretty slowly from like, okay, you're doing it without any assistance. Then you have a little bit of assistance to help like make it cognitively easier and help guide you and, and help you not make mistakes and also help your load with stuff that stuff that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get to. And then slowly over time, it'll just become more and more efficient, but there will be sort of like a, there's a slow adaptation to more machine learning in the world, I think. I want to know more about managing a supply and demand pool like this. There's a variety of ways you can deal with it. Uh, I've read about how Mechanical Turk handles it. I've read about how data labeling shops in China. Obviously, there's a lot of machine learning going on in China as well, and they have a lot of data labeling to do. You've got competitors like Crowdflower, although I guess Crowdflower, I think, is is Mechanical Turk under the hood, but I'm sure you have some competitors. What are the places where you can differentiate in the process of managing that labor pool? Yeah, again, this is something we think a lot about, and and I think we very much approach this this whole problem as a product and engineering problem versus an operations problem. And that I think, I mean, first of all, that philosophy impacts you a lot, especially like, and it compounds over time as you build various things. But in particular, for example, we've always taken the approach that the labelers are not actively managed by a supervisor or anything like that, which is how you would approach it if you were more operationally focused, but they're managed automatically through systems that are able to constantly monitor their quality and give them feedback in cases where their quality is degrading or the way they can improve um, and sort of much are able to actually much better and more fine-grainedly help guide a labeler than if somebody was sort of like 10% of the time over their shoulder watching their work. So a lot of it is sort of taking this approach, which is if you were to build a product suite that were to that were to aid labelers in getting trained up and becoming more efficient in understanding how well they're doing, et cetera. And you were to start from that point, how sophisticated and how efficient could you make the whole process? And 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 we've definitely seen, especially over time, um, like we've been working on this for three years. First of all, our gains have compounded, right? Like the product gains that we get continue to snowball and give us more and more infrastructure that lets us build like better and better and more efficient processes. But also it's sort of, 
the gap between that and if you were to solve this as sort of a purely operational problem um, continues to widen. So it's a pretty good question. I think it might not be obvious, but if you really think about it, there's a lot in terms of like a human management or in a, a purely operationally managed process that is very inefficient. And if you're able to replace the small things that that like a in a human management process, like providing feedback or um, giving it setting expectations or like understanding how how well people are performing, et cetera. If you're able to productize a lot of those um, functions, then you can produce a much more efficient, much more scalable system. What you said there about the product and engineering focus rather than the operational focus. Like when I think about Mechanical Turk versus scale, I sometimes think about what is the corollary to the Fiverr and Upwork marketplace, and 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 what I'll say about that is Fiverr and Upwork. I I'm fascinated by these platforms, and I I'm a power user of them. Um, I've gained like I've been able to basically like the, I don't know if I would be able to build this business in the same way if I didn't have these knowledge work gig economies. And it's quite interesting that you never really hear people talk about the gig economy in terms of Fiverr and Upwork and like other like online work platforms. It's always the manual labor or the Uber, but it's like the tremendous freedom of the gig economy has definitely extended to knowledge work, which I think the corporate world hasn't fully grappled with yet, but that's a different topic. In my interaction with Fiverr, you occasionally do have these issues where there's debatable quality, like especially on creative work. The thing about creative work is it has a lot of subjectivity. You know, like you ask for a website design, somebody gives you a website design, you're like, that sucks. This was a, this person was, they had a bunch of five-star ratings and they produced bad design work, I want a refund. And then you have this additional subjectivity problem of, the customer support center. And then so so then Fiverr not only has to institutionalize how they deal with subjectivity across the core platform, the product and engineering question, but then they have this deeply operational problem of how the customer service department like A scales and B is standardized in its practices. It just sounds like a complete headache. How have you managed to avoid that? It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, again, the devil's always in the details, right? <laughs> There's always nuance when it comes to the edge cases and how do you how do you scale these things up is a really good question. So I, I think there's a couple a couple insights here that make it make things as more and more feasible. But but as a general rule, right? It's sort of like there's a couple simple principles that help. So first is um, you want to measure anything that you want to improve, right? It's simple enough, but, and organizations always say it, like there's sort of like the, the make what you measure kind of truism. But for cases like this, I mean, part of the challenge with, with the way that you framed the problem, right? Which is, oh, you have this like subjectivity in, in creative work. And then you have, and then you have to like figure out how, how like the customer support agent is going to have to deal with it. A lot of it is you're sort of, you're framing it again as, as this uh, very subjective problem which makes it very challenging to operationalize against, right? But now I'm not saying we don't do website design. So I, I fully appreciate that website design, there's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's like, a, yeah, yeah. There's like a layer of true inherent subjectivity that is, that is difficult. But as much as possible, you want to build measurement into things that you need to operate against, right? So this is one reason why we invest so much into quality measurement systems, right? Because you can't, it can't simply just be the case that like, we produce we produce some data for a customer and then they come to us and just say oh this like we think this data sucks and that's like then we have to say oh okay how does it suck etc it's always about what is the very measurably what is like the magnitude of the issues what is what is the actual magnitude of the errors and then how do we uh, how do we build different processes that can support dealing with different kinds of errors and and sort of like pushing all those error rates down is is one way to look at it and so one approach is, is measurement as much as possible is, is is really critical. Another is that, and this is a general rule of, of sort of like building infrastructure, right? You always hold yourself to a higher standard than the customer holds you to. 
And that's, it's, it's simple, right? Like you always have, like we have some internal SLA, which is higher than our external SLA because we need to really make sure we don't breach the external SLA. And simple stuff like that, that, that builds like this operational capability and this product mindset around sort of how do you build like just very robust systems. You're building this system for people to label data and have a, a job. And at the same time, you're building a company where people work. There's a lot of changes to the way that labor, knowledge work is, is done these days. I'd like your predictions on how work I'm kind of more interested in the corporate side of things, but I am also interested in the in the knowledge work gig economy side of things, but particularly your experience, like shifting your experience to, to the idea of, of building a company. How do you want your company to look in five years or 10 years in terms of how much work is taking place at the office? Do you want it to be remote? How do you want the work to proceed? Like, do you want people working shorter work days? Give me your perspective for what an ideal work structure looks like as your company evolves. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, and it's something that I think is like, you're kind of exactly right, which is right now we're in this, we're in somewhat of an upheaval because there's this sort of like quote unquote old way of doing things just cannot be the most efficient. So there has to be something something better. And I think we're sort of like, there's a lot of frankly, experimentation to understand what the right approach is. So I, I think there's there's a couple things that are really that that are important to keep in mind. The first, which is the the maybe the the overall insight, right, is that talent is is pretty evenly distributed around the world. And that is that is certainly true. It is certainly true that it's not like not all the great engineers work in the Bay Area in Seattle and New York. There are great engineers literally everywhere, everywhere where there's internet and there's access to computers. And and it's sort of, you're lying to yourself if you don't think that, right? So there is, it's really important to recognize first that that, that talent is, is evenly distributed. And then a lot of people don't necessarily want to live in the Bay Area. And so if you sort of like take a very talent first approach, then you need some structure to support a global engineering or whatever other craft workforce. The other thing though, that is actually that is tricky that people talk less about is that culture and sort of norms around how work gets done are very difficult to commun- to communicate like extremely extremely difficult to codify and communicate efficiently across especially like globally but also even also even with people you're in the office every day with it's not it's not particularly easy so that's that's maybe the main challenge or the main problem, right? And so th- certainly you could have a, a global engineering force, but the, the real question is how efficiently are you communicating the culture and the work norms to all these people around the world and how are you doing that effectively? Um, and I think that's, that's maybe the, if I were to say, what's like, the, what's like the blocker to every organization going fully remote right now? I think that is maybe the, that is maybe the core blocker because organizations are defined by their culture but if if the way that you build your team means that you can't really communicate the cultures or culture ends up being sort of more of a soup or more closer to the average culture um, then that really that really hurts you and so I, I do think some people are doing really interesting things to solve this um, like GitLab uh, they have an employee handbook literally anybody on the internet can can go go look at it which is really incredible and they sort of they just write everything down but even then I think, I don't think that's perfect. I don't think that fully solves the problem because there's a lot that's sort of implicit in just how people interact that is relatively nuanced. So I don't have a solution. I think the approach that 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 I that we take that I think I think works is you have you always have some sort of nexus or some sort of like some relatively concentrated areas where there's a lot of people where culture is sort of like uniform, well communicated. And then you support people who work remotely, uh, work all around the world, and you figure out how to how to communicate that culture to them. And the simplest way is they just they, it turns out they spend some amount of time in the office or in one of these nexuses, and they they will absorb it and grok it and meet the people they work with, etc. And then and then you're sort of more more it's more stable. 
it's worth pointing out that we're doing this interview in person. We could have just as easily done it over VoIP, but you and I both know that there are unspoken communication points. Eye contact. Am I distracted? How is my body language when I'm reacting to a question? These things are proof points of a culture. Do people feel comfortable on average? Are people actually focused on their work? These are things that you can't totally convey with as much bandwidth over the internet. It doesn't matter how many words are in your employee handbook. I'm sorry. Employee handbooks don't get communicated through osmosis. You have to actually read it. Like, compiling code takes time, and reading an employee handbook is compiling a lot of code for your brain, and I think it's a lossy process. I'm fascinated by GitLab, but I am... We'll see, right? Like, I think the jury is very much still out on whether that experiment will work. And I think a lot of it comes down to what is the tooling that we need? I'm very glad GitLab is running this experiment. I think it's beautiful. I'm a huge fan of Sid. But, you know, we'll see. Is Slack good enough? Is Zoom good enough? Yeah, again, I think it's like, it's very, it's great that these experiments are being run, right? Because they're sort of like, until you actually run the experiment, you'd never know. And I do think... I'm really hopeful that, so yeah, definitely hopeful that, that GitLab continues to be as, as wildly successful as they have been. But I'm, I'm also hopeful that like more and more companies try different slight variations, right? And that we sort of figure out what the exact, maybe not the exact right, but what, what a very reasonable sort of mode ends up looking like. I think it's, it's, it's really exciting because there's new tools coming online every day. There's more and more information that people just absorb Right. It's really interesting. One, one thing that's been kind of crazy, right? If I just think about the book Zero to One, when Zero to One first came out, all of the ideas, I think, were very were quite fresh. They were really new. They were really interesting. At this point, most of the ideas from Zero to One have basically entered the like the, the lexicon of startup people, right? And so now all the ideas seem trite. But it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, right? That just in the, I don't know, it was published maybe four or five years ago. In those four or five years, all those ideas have sort of become operating standards or, or sort of like truisms to most people in the, in the community. Even the culture of Silicon Valley and the ability for us to learn moves so, so quickly that I think, I mean, I'm very optimistic that like we'll be able to grok this like remote work problem. Do you really think that book has been fully internalized? I think that book has has a lot more depth that has not been fully realized by Silicon Valley, particularly the more controversial areas of it, like scapegoating, right? Like people don't really talk about that aspect of the book, but there's like the scapegoating idea. And arguably, Elon Musk was like the PayPal scapegoat, right? And people don't really talk about that. To be clear, yes, there's definitely ideas in there that are not that people don't people have not fully internalized, but a lot of the ones have have really been uh, I think have really have, have I mean a, a lot of the ideas certainly have become very commonplace in a way that like I think that five years ago when you read it for the first time the big ideas the things that you would read about it when you first read it or when you read it when it came out that would seem shocking or interesting are very different from the ones that you would read now. That when reading the book, you would find shocking or interesting. That I agree with. Although I wonder, like, is that a product of, like, just being a human? Because, like, that's so true of all the good books you read. You know, like, I'm rereading Hard Thing About Hard Thing. I read that book, you know, like, I've read it a couple times in the past. I feel like I'm reading a totally new book. Yeah, I mean, the, there's some function here that's really hard to understand, right? It's like a function of, like, where your head is at and the thing, the experiences that you've rocked and had in the meantime. And then those shape your comprehension of the words that you're sort of like reading off the page. It's hard to say. It's always hard to say. Under that same kind of rubric of reflection and things seeming different at different times, you were at Quora for, what was it, a year and a half? Yeah, roughly. So I think you were at Quora like starting when the company was probably like two and a half or three years old, right? Or like somewhere around then? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember Some, something in that range, maybe three, 
three or four years old. Is but it's it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that you probably were at Quora around a period where you are now at with your company, and I bet you still feel like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy, like the wheels are coming off here, like I'm having trouble managing my psychology here, this person's about to quit, this person's joining and they're asking for way more compensation. And then if you imagine yourself joining Quora, probably back in the day, you're like, ah, I'm at a new job and it's great and this company's so well run and oh, the waffles in the morning and the omelets at night and... Yeah. Isn't that interesting to reflect on how probably how, how intact the company felt when you joined relative to, I bet, how you feel right now. It's a very valid, very valid point, right? Which is when I joined Quora, again, it was actually, it was even, it was even smaller in terms of headcount than, than scale is now. It felt, you're right, intact is, is the right word. It felt intact. It felt stable. Uh, it felt like, it felt like most, a lot of things had been figured out. And if, yeah, if I think about scale, certainly from my perspective, I feel like Nothing's been figured out. Uh, <laughs> we have we have a lot more work to be doing. We have like so many things that we could be doing so much better. Um, and I th- I think a lot of this actually the the way I think about this actually is like it's actually about sort of like the context that you gain. So you made this comment earlier about how like the communication of values, for example, is very lossy, right? I, I actually I I sort of have this belief in general about about most things that like most things are really tricky to understand. So so the the communication of them is almost always really lossy. So when you first join a company, or you're sort of like early on in the company, you never really know what are all the nuances, what are all the hard things, et cetera. So, and so that means that you sort of think everything's intact. You think that there's like, that, that things are good in general. And then as you learn more and you gain more context and you sort of like really understand all the problems that be, you gain you gain a really deep appreciation, which is like, Oh my God, things could be like, we have like, there's so much potential. Things could be a lot better. Like I think about over, over the time, over my time at Quora even, and as I learned more and more, right, I had like more and more confidence and more intuition about various things that could be done better. And I sort of like, I understood more and more about how, I shouldn't say basically how much opportunity there was. Like you, you really grok that over time as you understand the really, the creepy crawlies. Right. And then and that scale, I have this benefit, which is like I've known all the creepy crawlies or, or I've gotten to know all the real the nuances over time. And it, it sort of benefits me in understanding, like, how we could be doing better. Yeah, I've always felt Quora is super underestimated. And one of the things that made me feel that way early on was I felt like the company had a pretty distinct approach to engineering. And I can't quite put my finger on why it's distinct, but I'm sure you have your ideas what are the places where you disagree or diverge with how engineering is done at Quora? Like things that you have implemented at scale where you're like, we're not doing unit testing as much as Quora. Like we're just, we're throwing that out the window. Too many tests at Quora, too much work. That's a really good question, actually. So how you do engineering is sort of, is deeply tied to the overall culture and style of the company. So one thing that I think is, is certainly very different, right, is that Quora as, as a product is sort of relatively stable in the sense that they, like, they'll launch a few large new products a year, but for the most part, a lot of the optimizations are happening sort of either under the hood or in small parts of the small parts of Quora. Like it's, there's sort of this view at Quora, which I think is fair given, given how that, that product has, has worked to date, which is like this large complex machine. And then we sort of, we, you take a holistic view and you have sort of a, a more, a more consensus based view on how you tweak the machine. Right. I think that that philosophy, I really, especially based on what we're working on at scale, where, as you mentioned, right, where you have a lot of different products, there's a lot of surface area and there's a lot of there's surface area on with our customers, there's surface area with a lot of the algorithms we use, there's surface area with, with the sort of like labeler side. Because of all of this, all the surface area, it's important that I think at scale that we, we sort of just like move really fast on making product decisions. And it's more, it's much less consensus based. It's sort of more, okay, there's like a thousand, a thousand flowers blooming or whatnot. Like people, it's okay if a lot of people are, are sort of like running in potentially even different directions, as long as like we're sort of making changes and moving very quickly. 
And then this trickles down into some things about how software engineering ends up manifesting, which is overall the move fast, break things culture, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about. But I, I do think it's like, you shouldn't need to invest that much in testing. You should take an approach where it's like, it's more okay for things to break and that you you sort of like, you'll f- the overall system is like the engineers plus the code, right? And that, that whole ecosystem will adapt to things. And as long as you sort of have a fast clock speed and a fast iteration speed, that's sort of the, the thing that dominates. That was maybe one really, really core thing that I took away from my time at Quora. An- another thing that I think they did that, that I... I disagree with, but not, again, this is like, this is just, I, I think this is a different strokes kind of thing. Quora invested a lot into data and invested and, and had very good hygiene and understanding of all the data on the platform and everything that was happening. And what I noticed is like the full emphasis on data had a cost, which is people operate less through intuition. and the gut feelings that people had, if it wasn't backed up in the data, it was very hard to figure out how to justify those things. And I do actually think that like, especially today in today's fast moving world, you need to be able to act in situations where you where you might just have uh, intuition or you might just have a gut feeling. And I think that kind of uh, being able to do that, I think is really, is really important. So especially if you want to like launch a bunch of new products over time, uh, or you want to try crazy new things all the time. And so that, that's another thing that I think that, and I think there's a lot of organizations that operate in this very data-driven manner. I think Facebook does as well, for example. And I think that, that hurts in sort of this ability to make, to make good qualitative decisions. When we last spoke, we talked a lot about self-driving. You've built, I could be wrong about this, but my sense is that investing in self-driving data labeling infrastructure really took your company to the next level. Like you built tools that were desperately needed by Waymo, Uber, Zooks, whatever, name your self-driving car company that uses your your data labeling platform. And essentially those tools, if I understand correctly, were very well-designed, beautiful experiences for the data labelers that allowed them the expressivity that they needed to efficiently label data which is a profound insight and was a was a gigantic market depth for you. Even it, it's also very interesting because the number of customers is obviously like somewhat small. You can probably count them on two hands. Well, maybe maybe more at this point, but I guess there's drone companies and whatnot. But by volume, obviously it's the self-driving car companies. There's not too many of those. But just the depth and the volume of information is like so juicy. And so it really took your company to the next level. Give me your perspective on where we are in self-driving car development. Yeah, it's not, not an uncommon question <laughs> in today's world. Fundamentally, I think here's overall where we're at, right? I think we're at a state where we sort of like, we know technologically where we need to get to. Like in some sense, the full engineering problem has been mapped out, right? And every year... The systems are getting better and better and better. Not only are they getting more data, but we're sort of being more novel in our approaches. We're getting better sensors. We're getting better compute, et cetera. So every year we're getting closer and closer to the sort of like where where we know from an engineering perspective we need to get to. And unfortunately, and this is just a a reality in the industry that I actually think is fine, there were some very aggressive estimates if you ask five people in self-driving when they think it'll happen, you'll get five different answers. And and the ones that were the earliest get publicized, right? But that obviously means if they're the ones that are the earliest, then maybe they're the least likely to be true. So I think there was there's sort of a lot of optimism that maybe incorrectly seeped into the the public understanding of self-driving. But the but the reality is like we know what we need to do to to improve the technology. There's a lot like some of the smartest people in the world are working on the problem, and it will get there certainly within due time. And I do think within the next couple of years, there will be there will be deployments that are meaningful. I mean, maybe we'll all fly to Phoenix and you'll be able to see like, okay, this this stuff is is actually really legitimate. Like the, the Waymo cars, for example, actually do drive quite well. And this is like, and despite despite what uh, what different articles will say, I mean, fundamentally they, they drive quite well. And so 
And so we're, we're at this, we're at this, we're kind of at, I mean, these things always fo- follow hype cycles, right? We're at the valley after the, the peak, right? And we're at the point where, oh, maybe you could be extremely pessimistic. But the reality is like, it'll happen. Technology keeps getting better. It's just more of a, it's less one of those kinds of problems that you could sort of, you could set a deadline. And if you're nearing the deadline and it's not perfect, you could just say, let's ship it and like, uh, let's just patch the holes. It is just like a different kind of problem that you need to, by the time you're shipping it, feel re- feel pretty good about everything that you have, and so it just doesn't really follow that the the like that kind of engineering paradigm that is sort of like famously popularized by Steve Jobs or whatnot, where you just like set a date and you get it done, and like if it's if it's not done by then, you like patch all the holes and just just get it out there. You just can't take that approach in this in this particular problem. It's definitely not a problem where you want intuition to be guiding your product development. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like a lot of the stuff that I think people thought would never happen are actually happening and are very exciting, right? Like I think, for example, there was always this belief that LiDARs would be incredibly expensive. Well, it turns out that now there's manufacturers like Hesai in China that have made significant strides in the manufacturing process and manufacturing efficiency. And if I had to bet, I do think in the future that like LIDARs will be inexpensive enough uh, or sort of like, yeah, inexpensive enough where, where it's actually, it's no longer this like glaring price tag of $100,000 or whatnot to put it, put it on a vehicle. I think the same will happen for specialized compute for self-driving. I think the same thing will happen for everything else. And so the forces of the market are definitely pushing pushing us to a world where where it's so much more feasible and so much less outlandish than it than it was in the past. Overall sort of um, summary, still very optimistic on the technology. Again, knowing the exact state of like what all where all the components are, where perception is, planning, prediction, etc. We're very close. And so it'll just be a couple more eng cycles. <laughs> now that it could be it could be a large number of eng cycles, but it is just it is an engineering problem left. It's not some mythical like unicorn that we have to go find. What's the hardest problem you're working on at scale right now? There's a number of things that are hard, but the maybe the the most challenging or interesting technical problem is one around how do you properly uh, measure and combat bias in data, bias in data and bias in labels, right? It's a pretty hard problem because when we say data is biased, right? It's always based on some semantic subjective thing that humans grok from the data, right? Like the famous example of AI bias is around race used in a lot of image recognition or face recognition algorithms. And in advance, it would have been like opaque. So to a computer, to the machine itself, opaque to a human, it's very hard to know that that kind of bias exists in the data set, unless you're already looking for that kind of bias, right? But what that means is that bias sort of has this unknown unknowns problem where there could be different kinds of bias in the data that unless you've built a system that is able to identify these issues would just be impossible to identify until after the fact, right? So this is something that we we think a lot about on behalf of our customers, on behalf of sort of like the whole machine learning community. And we definitely think we have the ability because again, labelers are seeing all the data, we have the ability to actually build a, like sort of a solution for the the whole community on this problem and and combat it effectively but it's it's sort of tricky problem because it's so it's kind of hard to design the the exact solution that will work 100% of the time we're nearing the end of our time i want to just talk a little bit about your psychology and managing yourself through building this company because this is what you've done is kind of, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's unprecedented. I think it's unprecedented. Just the velocity at which you've built this company. Like, I mean, you just raised $100 million, Series C. You're three years into the company. I love your approach, like the speed and the the bias towards just like moving quickly, deferring to human intuition. I think it's pragmatic. I think it's realistic. It's. I think it's the kind of company that you need to build if you actually want to build a large engineering workforce. Because I don't think engineers, I think engineers are losing their patience with like the big, old, dusty, mechanistic, 
heavily unit tested engineering process. I think engineers want to have fun and I think they want to work at somewhere that's inspiring. But building that kind of company is taxing. I know you must be like thinking deeply about how much sleep do I get? Do I drink coffee? Do I get exercise? Do I take weekends? Do I take vacations? Tell me how you're managing that process. I'm I'm very lucky, which is that me personally, I'm a very forward-looking person. So I will always debug various situations, but I'm always very, even, even when bad stuff happens, right? I'm always very forward-focused in how do we, like, what's the potential in the future? How do we achieve it, et cetera? So, so I think very luckily, I think my emotional state has been stable, which is, which is good, obviously. But then when I think about sort of like, taking care of myself, managing myself, et cetera. I think the sort of like the, the test that I always apply is like, right now, do I feel like continuing to push hard on scale and, and do like the next X things that I think are really important? Is that like deeply energizing for me? And realistically, there, there were times in scale's history where that it wasn't energizing for me, right? Where it was like, oh, I just want to like play video games instead, or I just want to like, sleep instead i think like once you have this like feeling that it's like oh the work you're doing is not is not energizing that's a big thing to fix there's a big bug because these things like in general humans right they follow these positive feedback loops right so either the work is energizing and that the success or failure of that work makes you more excited to do the next thing and and the next thing and the next thing and sort of like you go on in in a in this positive virtuous cycle or it goes the other way where it's like the work you do is not energizing and then and so you do it worse and so the results are bad and then you feel even worse and then you get even less energized and and sort of and then eventually you're sort of you're sort of like really hating what you're doing so the the way i think about this a lot of the time is like how do you how do you short circuit whenever you're not feeling energized and um, and like deeply debug and understand like what is it about what you're about to do that's that's sort of that's so dreadful or so unpleasant and then either just like not doing those things and doing other stuff that energizes you or coming to some conclusion about like okay it actually was like this thing and so that thing I actually thought about now more and I'm okay with it or whatnot. I mean I'll give I'll give a really simple example which is like. There were like, and this is, I think, actually a really common thing that happens to founders is in the middle of scale, there's a point where I think a lot of the people and organizational stuff was just like, was really deeply non-energizing. It was like, I had to deal with it. And it was, it was not, not the most fun thing. And, and I, I knew I wasn't that great at it, et cetera. And then I think two things happened. First, I, I did less of it, <laughs> which helped. And then the second thing is I sort of realized that like, okay, the thing about this that actually is really exciting is A, watching people get better and, and sort of and, and really improve. And then B, um, like uh, spending more time and, and sort of like work with people who inspire me. And so that was like, that was the reframe I needed. And then I'm like, okay, so actually I can focus myself on how do I improve people? How do I like help them understand what they can be doing better, et cetera. That was a very helpful reframe for me. So those are my five cents <laughs> on, on the matter. Great. Okay. Uh, last question. Tell me your most far out idea about how the world will be different in 10 years. I guess I'm more boring than, than some other people who might. I know even your boring one's going to be good. So like if we, if we think through what we were talking about before with like, the white collar labelers, et cetera. I mean, I do think there is, there's a very real scenario that like, that in a decade, most of the important processes are run by supervised learned machine learning algorithms. I think that's far more plausible than other machine learning algorithms taking over the world. But, but there will be like this very real scenario in the future where, where most people their job is to kind of like, in some sense, garden or observe or or sort of like manage an algorithm, right? And so if you think about like all the judgments that, that we make every day, if instead you're sort of like a warden or a gardener or whatnot, like just, just slowly tending and pushing the model in various directions to help it get better and better at whatever you used to do, 
in the limit, this gets to a point where like the model is, is not blocked by the things that you are. And so it's executing at a hundred X, a thousand X, what you could do and it interacts with their models, et cetera. And you're sort of just, you're sort of tending to it. There, there's like, there's this real potential for like a huge amount of just maybe efficiency gain or just like the world getting all the things that are like holding us back right now or not holding us back in the future. Like maybe discovering drugs will just be like this very fast, like easy process in the future. And uh, diagnosing diseases will be like this instant process. And there'll be all these things that just like become easy and instant. And then all of a sudden we're sort of like, there's a challenge which is like, okay, what are the thing at that point? What are the hard things? Right. And, and that that's really hard to say. Like it's, it's hard to say, imagine everything happens like, at a hundred times the clock speed is today, then what's like, what's the things that humans at their clock speed they're thinking about? That's maybe the crowd approach. There's probably, I don't know if somebody has written a sci-fi on this, but somebody should. <laughs> Ray Kurzweil's books. Oh yeah? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I mean, sci-fi or, or, the, or reality, depending on how you look at it. Alexander, it's been awesome talking to you. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for having me again.